We're going to jump right into the scripture passage this morning. Please stand with me. We'll be reading from John 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, The illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, "'Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died.' But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. 
But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the grace you show us in this passage and I pray that you would comfort our hearts, move us this morning, help us to to see the beauty of your word, to see the depth of the grace that you have offered us in Christ, that you have shown to us in the gospel. I pray that you would would work through this weak preacher, um, this sinful man who is just here to proclaim the good news that you have given. I pray that you would move by your spirit among us and stir us up to love good works, and above all, to the knowledge of your love for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I have to admit, as I start out this morning, that when Bill told me that I would be able to preach this morning and that I should choose a Lenten text, it was kind of like hitting the jackpot. This is, in all of Scripture, my favorite text. And then I figured, why not also choose my favorite hymn? So I got a little bit greedy this morning. <laughs> But it is such a deep text. If you know me well, if you've spoken to me particularly about hymns, you know that many, if not all, of my favorite hymns are the hymns that have a deep dose of sadness. You know, the, hymns that we, the hymns that we sing at funerals, the hymns that we sing on Good Friday. It just seems like those hymns pierce to the heart of what really is true in this world. You know, those, those hymns help us to cut through the imaginary worlds that we try to build up that don't involve tears and that don't involve suffering and death, and they help us to see, no, this is how things really are and yet are so hopeful in the midst of that. Those good, sad hymns strike at the reality of the world. Because every time that we try to imagine a world, and particularly every time that we try to imagine a gospel that doesn't involve suffering... We invent a gospel that is unable to reach us in our suffering, right? Anytime that we invent a gospel that doesn't involve Jesus suffering and doesn't involve me suffering, that is a gospel that when I am suffering, I have no hope. But the good news is that the gospel deeply embraces our suffering and yet does not leave us there. Before we get into the meat of this story, I think it's helpful to notice who it is about. This is not just a story about a miracle, although it is that. This is a story about people who we know, people who Jesus has already met, who he has spent time with. We, along with John's readers, have heard the story of 
Jesus meeting with Mary and Martha. Right? We read of it in Luke 10, how Martha was you know, all busy doing all the things that she was supposed to do to prepare for a guest. She was probably cooking and cleaning and getting everything ready to have the house presentable. And Mary was there sitting at Jesus' feet, just listening and soaking in the teaching. And Martha was so angry. And Jesus reacts and says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. These are the people that we're talking about. They're friends of Jesus. John actually also reveals something that we don't learn from the other Gospels, that Mary was the one who would anoint uh, the Lord with ointment and wipe, her, wipe his feet with her hair. So these are people who are, are not just people known to Jesus, but loved, you know, friends with him. Right? They could have sat around a table and reminisced and said, you remember when Martha was such a stick in the mud and wouldn't let you sit here and learn from me? And they could have remembered their friendship. And we we're told that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. I think this helps us to see a little bit of what it means for Jesus to hear this news that Lazarus, your friend, is sick, is sick unto death. I think it also adds somewhat to the confusion about how Jesus responds. It would have made sense for Jesus to immediately drop everything that he was doing and go to be with him, to be so concerned over his, his friend Lazarus. Or on the other hand, it would have made sense for Jesus to say, I love you, Lazarus, but the last time I was in your town, people tried to kill me. And to stay away, that was certainly what the disciples wanted him to do. Well, I think the disciples were a little bit confused. <laughs> it was, make up your mind, Jesus. Either it's as urgent and we need to go, or it's not. And frankly, if it's not, we would rather not go to the place where they want to stone you and, by extension, us. <laughs> you have to love the mix of faith and cynicism in Thomas's comment at the end of that. Let us also go that we may die with him. And Jesus' reasoning is so interesting. He says, for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. He says it's not just accidental. It's not just that he had something else to do before going to Lazarus. He has a purpose. This mysterious plan that he has that his disciples don't seem to get. He says it was for the glory of God so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. We know that Jesus could have healed his friend Lazarus from far off. He does that elsewhere in the Gospels. Right? He does that for Jairus' daughter. He says you know, she has been healed, even though she, he doesn't go to her. Or he could have rushed to her. But why, Jesus? Why are you waiting? Isn't that just what we feel any time that we suffer as well? I think there's a, there's a real resonance that I feel with that text why are you waiting, Jesus? Yeah. I know that you could have averted this. I can imagine all of the things that you could have done to fix this situation. Yeah. I remember being in a car crash when I was 18 and thinking, Jesus, you could have, yeah, you could have just helped those brakes to work a little bit better. <laughs> I wouldn't have had to go through this. You could, have avert, you, know, you could have planned that that tree wouldn't have been where it was. There are all these things, all these yeah. Situations we can imagine, Jesus, you could have made this so much easier. Why are you waiting, Jesus? And we search for convincing reasons that he would allow this to happen. You know, maybe Jesus, you wanted to teach me something through this situation. 
Maybe you've been in this place, I certainly have, where you say, maybe, you, you know, I'm suffering, but Jesus wants me to learn to, to lean on him and to rest on him. And so you do your best and you triple your quiet time and, and all of a sudden you realize, you know, he still hasn't taken away the suffering. <laughs> Jesus, why are you waiting? And we remain in the position of the apostles. That Jesus has promised us with complete clarity that all things are working together for our good. And yet, often we ask Jesus, how is that happening? We don't understand. Jesus, why are you waiting? This seems also to be what Martha and Mary are going through when Jesus finally comes to them. They trust so deeply in Jesus in some ways, and yet they seem so disappointed. If you had only been here, Jesus, if you had only made it a little bit quicker, then my brother wouldn't have died. And even then, Martha knew that whatever Jesus asked the Father for, he would receive. But when Jesus says, Lazarus will rise again, she didn't even dare to hope that he meant what it sounded like he meant. Surely he was only talking about that far and distant and beautiful day when all the dead would rise again. But Jesus corrects her, and I think this is important. He doesn't correct her about the timing of Lazarus' resurrection. After all, Lazarus, at some point after this, died. He's resurrected, and at some point after that, he did not live until this day. He is not hiding somewhere in the world. Lazarus died as we all die. But Jesus says, your, your mistake was not in the timing of his resurrection. Your mistake is you have not yet fully understood who I am. He says that great statement, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Martha, you have not yet understood the fullness of who I am for you. This is an incredible statement for two reasons. First, there had been resurrections in Scripture. It's not the first occasion of a resurrection. You think of the story of Elisha uh, raising the Shunammite woman's son. My small group just uh, studied that the other week. And there is this amazing resurrection, yet it's clear that it is not by Elisha's power. It is not Elisha saying, I have within myself the ability to raise this child. In fact, he seems a little bit daunted by the task. But Jesus comes and says, no, this is me. I am the resurrection and the life, not by a power outside of me, not by an appeal to a higher power, but I myself am the resurrection and the life. And second, this is an amazing statement, because as he has done in a number of times throughout the book of John, Jesus is taking on himself the name of God. I am Yahweh, right? I am the name that uh, God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. I am. Jesus is saying, I am very God among you. I am the resurrection and the life. And that statement defines for us the way that we read this story. It's like Jesus is saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Come and see what that means. Having had this private conversation with Martha, Jesus meets briefly with Mary before going to the tomb. And we aren't told much of that conversation. Other than that Mary restates what, Mary, what Martha had said before. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But we are told one more thing about Mary, that she began to weep. And that Jesus, seeing her weeping, was 
deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Twice in this story, Jesus shows great emotion. Here, watching Mary's grief and before the tomb where he himself begins to weep. Commentators on this passage throughout all of Christian history have struggled with this fact. It doesn't seem to make sense. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He's, he's told us his plan. Right? He's expressed this, this illness does not lead to death. Right? He is merely sleeping and I will call him back. And yet he weeps, not once but twice. There have been those who suggest that Jesus is merely weeping and he is merely agitated because he sees the unbelief of those around him. There have been those who, who claim that he is just angry, that they don't yet realize who he is. I think this is probably an uncharitable reading of the text, an uncharitable reading of what Jesus is doing. Maybe if Jesus had only wept before the crowds, but he weeps twice. He weeps before the crowds, he weeps before Mary, and he weeps alone before the tomb. What is Jesus weeping for? There's a story from early in church history of a woman called St. Macrina. You probably, unless you really have delved deep into church history, have probably not heard of St. Macrina. Um, but there's a story about her. She lived in the 4th century. It was a relative of Gregory of Nazianzus, who was a little bit more of a major figure in that era. And there's a story about her in which um, her younger brother, who had, she had been devoted to, she had taught him, she had kind of raised him in some ways, her younger brother dies. And her mother reacts as mothers do when their ch children die, and she is passionately grieving, and she is, she is overwhelmed with the, the pain of having lost her child. And Macrina is remembered for having told her mother, stop crying. Is no, there's no reason to cry because Jesus has already won the victory and your son is with him. There is no reason to cry. She is commended for this. I think we can tend to act that way sometimes with one another. Stop crying. You don't need to cry. He's in a better place. And in a way, that is very true. And yeah, I think they're missing what Jesus is crying about at the tomb. I think there's a reason that we get this beautiful picture of Jesus at the tomb, weeping over his friend when he knew exactly what he was about to do. Why did Jesus weep? Was he uncertain of his ability to raise Lazarus? Was he angry that Mary and Martha would mourn the death of their brother? Was he grieved by the lack of faith in the onlookers? Or do we take the simpler meaning that Jesus, being true man as well as true God, was mourning the death of his friend? We tend to assume that it's noble to pretend that death isn't that bad, that it doesn't bother us that much. But Jesus knew in a way that even we don't fully comprehend the reality of death. We all have that blissful ignorance as we approach death that we have never known a world that didn't involve it. We have never known what it was 
for Adam to walk with God in the cool of the day and to not have the slightest inkling that there would be an end to that. We, we have no idea even what it means to die in some ways. And yet Jesus knew the depths of what it was to have death in the world, and he knew the incredible wrongness of death to the extent that he came to earth to experience and go through it himself to save his people from it. Jesus' tears were true grief, the grief of someone who knew the profound wrongness of death and who was committed at the greatest of expenses to defeat it. I think in light of Jesus' grief, our own grief is profoundly transformed. We are not called to avoid grief or to suppress our grief. In fact, frequently our inability to grieve is a sign not of our strength, but of our weakness, of our hard-heartedness. There are so many painful things in the world that sometimes it is easier to block ourselves off from them. I find that if I watch the news every day, I get to the point that I can't even grieve over the terrible things that are happening because there's just too much. There's too much in my life, and certainly there's too much in the world around me. And yet Jesus did no such thing. He stared death in the face to the fullest extent, and he knew exactly what it was, and he did not turn away. But thankfully, I think this is the the biggest part and the, the thing that makes this story so so powerful and so practical and helpful that Jesus didn't stop there. There are two times in the Gospels where Jesus shows this type of emotion. He gets angry at, at the people in the, uh, in the temple, but there are two times when he shows this type of grief, this type of emotional turmoil. He shows it at the tomb of Lazarus and he shows it in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he tells his father, not my will, but yours be done. Two times in the, in the life of Jesus where he grieves, he goes through the pain and stares death in the face, and at both occasions, it does not cease with his grieving, it ceases with his victory. At the tomb of Lazarus, he says, Lazarus, come out. And we see that foreshadowing of what Jesus was going to do at his own tomb when three days after his death, the tomb would be rolled away and he would not be found there. He calls to Lazarus, come out. And in that garden of Gethsemane, he does not grieve such as to turn away from the cross, but grieves just in such a way that it turns him squarely towards it. The grief that he endured only serves to illustrate the words that we recite frequently from Psalm 30, that weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Not just that joy comes as a reprieve from weeping, but that ultimately our weeping is aimed and inevitably leading to joy because of our Savior. This is the point that I want to make this morning. Not merely that it is appropriate and good that Christians should at times grieve. I thank Susan for coming up earlier and sharing about her own process of grief and what it means for us to grieve. I hope that next week you all go to this Lenten forum with Pierce Taylor Hibbs 
I haven't read much of his work, but I think that will be a very, very helpful thing for us. Because we all go through this, not just in big ways, but as we walk it out with one another. We all grieve, we all experience suffering and death. But the point that I want to make this morning is not merely that it is appropriate to grieve, not merely that Christ has overcome death, although that is a wonderful truth, but that Christ, in the way that he grieved and in the way that he won the victory, has fastened those two things together for us. He has fastened grieving and glory together in such a way that we never grieve without that grief being tied to the victory of the cross. We are told in Scripture, we suffer with Christ that we might be glorified with Christ. In every moment in which we suffer, we do not suffer, we do not grieve, as the book of 1 Thessalonians puts it, we do not grieve without hope, but we grieve in such a way that our hope is made evident. Because it is specifically in that moment that we remember that Christ has suffered before us, that we do not walk a path that he has not first walked, and that the end of that path will never be anything less than victory and glory with him and peace at his side and singing holy, holy, holy before his throne. Yes, death is terrible. Yes, the pain that we face is very real, is very difficult for us to face, but we are united to our Savior. He has won the victory so that even in the most painful moments of our life, at the very same time, we are partaking in the glory of his victory. Now I want to end just with a few brief points of application. This is one of those things that that we hear about grieving with joy and about having joy in the midst of sorrow. And to many of us, and at most times, that seems like I'm sure that there's some Christian out there who's able to do that, but that's a tall order. And it's true. We are not able to be Jesus. We are not able to endure everything that he endured, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually. We are not perfect people. We are sinners saved by grace. But there are things that we do that enable us more and more to trust in him, even in the hardest times. One of those things is that and when we encounter grief, when we encounter death, when we encounter suffering, we lean into it. We don't hide from it. We don't pretend that it doesn't exist. We don't you know, take the, the manly way out and just you know, grit our teeth. We, we meditate on it and remember that Christ has gone through this and remember what it led to. We live into our grief. And the second thing and I'll close with this, is that we grieve as a body. When Jesus came to Martha and Mary, he came to them not merely alone, but he came to them doing what God's people have always done. He came to them in the midst of people who had already come around them and grieved with them and mourned with them and supported them. And as we grieve on our own, we are tempted to feel so many, so many things, self-pity and, and fear and, and, God, are you really there? And did you really not want to save me from this? And as we grieve, it is 
of incredible importance that Susan was saying earlier that, that we seek and that we give support to one another. I think it's particularly as we live out the grief and the glory of the Christian life together that we strengthen each other in our ability to see, even in those hardest times, the glory of Christ, the peace of Christ, the joy of Christ that we have, even in those most difficult circumstances.